from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sights. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Hello and welcome to the CER podcast. I'm Beth Oppenheimer, researcher here, and today I'll be wading through the Brexit chaos with the CER's director, Charles Grant, and deputy director, John Springford. Hi, both. Hello. So we had a five-hour marathon cabinet last week, resulting in the publication of the withdrawal agreement, which settles the so-called Brexit divorce issues. Then we had pandemonium erupt in the Conservative Party. May lost her second Brexit secretary as Dominic Raab resigned after rejecting the deal that he'd negotiated. Work and Pension Secretary Esther McVeigh also resigned and a number of junior ministers. Michael Gove then went on to refuse the position of Brexit secretary and a relative unknown was appointed instead, Stephen Barclay. So you've both written very interesting pieces responding to these events. And I think I'll start with you, John, because your insight tackles what's actually in the withdrawal agreement. And then we'll move on to Charles to discuss the future. So, John, tell us, please, what's actually in this 585-page withdrawal agreement? OK, I'll be, I'll be very brief. I mean, the first thing to say is that the withdrawal agreement, as you say, is 585 pages, and the political declaration is seven. Um, so, obviously, a lot of the focus has been on the withdrawal agreement. But it is worth saying a, a word or two about the political declaration, just very briefly. It is extremely vague. It points to the UK leaving the single market, although it doesn't say that explicitly yet. And negotiators are still working on it, so it might well end up being about double the size. But it's going to be pretty vague. And I think a lot of the political reaction to this, um, as well as to the infamous backstop, is down to the fact that MPs are being asked to vote on a withdrawal deal that does not give them a clear direction of what's going to happen afterwards. Um, and seeing as the withdrawal deal includes the infamous bill for the UK's commitments to the EU. There's a general sense that we're paying between 40 and 60 billion euros probably for an indeterminate future. The other things that are in the withdrawal agreements um, were largely expected. I mean, citizens' rights are being pretty much largely protected. There are some small wins for the UK, like it's going to be harder for EU nationals to bring over EU spouses in the future if they get, if they, I don't know, go to France and fall in love with somebody and want to bring them back. Whether that's a good thing or not, I'll leave for you to decide. There's the transition, which is going to be standstill. So freedom of movement and payments into the EU budget will continue. But it's also potentially extendable. Uh, Michel Barnier suggested today that maybe it might be extendable to 2022. All of the really big fuss, though, is about the backstop or backstops, as I've come to call them. The um, Northern Ireland backstop is pretty similar to the draft backstop that the EU put out in March and which caused such a fuss. Northern Ireland will remain in the single market for goods, the electricity market. It will enforce the full customs code of the EU and there will be things like agri-food checks as a result of that on 
agricultural products, particularly products of animal origin that flow from Great Britain to Northern Ireland if the backstop is triggered. The UK, for its part, promises to adhere to the EU's rules and goods if the backstop is triggered, so that goods flowing from Northern Ireland to Great Britain won't have many checks, but there may well be checks, there almost certainly will be checks on particularly agri-food going from GB to NI. And then the other thing that has caused a lot of consternation is obviously the UK-EU Customs Union, which is included in the withdrawal agreement. This again is a insurance policy, it's not necessarily going to be triggered. It's pretty basic. It means that there's no need for a customs border obviating the need for any kind of tariffs or quotas or rules of origin between Great Britain and Northern Ireland and the UK and the EU as a whole. But for that, the UK has had to sign up to a lot of so-called level playing field provisions. So some of the EU's rules on labour, on the environment and on tax. And then just very finally, the EU, if the backstop is triggered, does have a veto on the UK leaving either part of the backstop. That doesn't mean that the UK cannot leave it. It can decide that it wants to rip up an international treaty and leave it unilaterally, but obviously that means that it will become something of a pariah and also the the EU will be able to impose sanctions on the UK, the form of tariffs and other measures if that happens. Great, very succinct, well done. Uh, Distilling 585 pages, no mean feat. So what about what the critics say then? They say the tabloids have been splashing that the EU has taken back control, that the deal will have Britain dancing to the EU's tune. Vassalage, that uh, word of Jacob Rees-Mogg has been floating around again. So will we be in a permanent customs union as Brexiteers fear? What does the withdrawal agreement mean for the future relationship? Well, the, the Article 50 team have been coming out in force this week on the EU side and saying, look, this doesn't mean that the UK is necessarily going to be in a customs union. And I think that's right. I mean, clearly, the withdrawal agreement and the political declaration say, we don't want this backstop to be triggered. We want to come up with a relationship that will mean that we don't need to have either backstop. There are some problems with that view, though. The first is that Theresa May has spent the best part of a year trying to come up with future relationships that would obviate the need for the Irish backstop. She came up with some solutions based on technology. She came up with some solutions based on the UK as a whole participating in the single market for goods. And the EU said no to those. So there is a big question about whether it really is possible to negotiate a customs relationship that means that we don't have to have either a Northern Irish backstop or an all-UK customs union. And the second thing to say about the all-UK customs union is that uh, alongside the withdrawal agreement, the EU and the UK put out a joint report where they said, you know, we are really going to try and negotiate something that supersedes the provisions and the protocols in this agreement. So... You know, one way of reading that is, you know, we don't want to have a frictionless border between the, all of the UK and the EU, and we certainly don't want a hard border on the island of Ireland. So the only real way to do that is to have a customs union, and so that's why I think the direction of travel is towards a, a whole UK customs union. And do you think that there's any room for manoeuvre with the withdrawal agreement? Because we've, we've kind of alluded to the fact that there's going to be a lot of factions that will have major problems with some of this. Can May make some changes in order to bring some of those people on board in the Commons? Today we've seen a migration sweetener announced. Will there be a bit of spin that's going on? I mean, I'm sure there's going to be a fair amount of spin. In terms of the withdrawal agreement itself... May has been pretty clear that she's not going to be willing to renegotiate it. And I think if she were to try to renegotiate it, the EU would tell her no. I mean, the one possibility that you could imagine, and here I'm getting into Charles's bit, but (laughs) you can imagine that if the withdrawal deal was 
voted down in the Commons in the meaningful vote, that Theresa May could go back and say, actually, we want to revert to a Northern Ireland-specific backstop, and we want the UK to be able to leave a customs union. And I think the EU would agree to that, but they would insist that you know the Northern Ireland backstop stays and Northern Ireland remains within the customs union, which obviously makes life very difficult for the DUP. However, it is possible to renegotiate or negotiate the political declaration because negotiations are ongoing with that. However, I don't think that will necessarily satisfy many of her critics, either on the ERG or in the DUP, because the political declaration makes clear that the UK is leaving the single market. It says, you know, warm words about there being deep regulatory cooperation, but it doesn't say anything about rules being harmonised or the UK necessarily signing up to EU rules. So I don't think there's any new sweetener in the form of words in the political declaration that would do that much to make life easier for Theresa May. It's also non-binding, isn't it? So it doesn't really help reassure people anyway. No, exactly. The withdrawal agreement is the only legally binding part of this process. Okay, thank you, John. I'm now going to turn to Charles to look towards the future. So first, Charles, will May survive? May looks in a fairly strong position at the moment. The ERG group of right-wing Eurosceptic backbenchers has threatened to bring her down by getting 48 letters written asking for a leadership contest. If 48 letters appear, there will be a leadership contest. At the moment, there's some doubt whether they can rustle up that many letters. If it does happen, there'll be a leadership contest, but I would expect her probably to survive it because it still suits many people in the Tory party, certainly most Remainers, to keep her in place to prevent somebody they couldn't stand like Boris Johnson becoming leader, but also quite a lot of leavers uh, want to keep her in place to do the deed of delivering Brexit and taking some responsibility for, for a deal that they know has to happen and should probably should happen, but they don't really like and don't want to take responsibility for. So I think it suits uh, a lot of people. Also, the leavers don't agree who they, who should replace May. Uh, just, we just see in the last 24 hours some uh, friction between the camps of Dominic Raab, who just resigned as DEXU secretary, and Boris Johnson, the former foreign secretary. Obviously, they both fancy their chances as Tory leader. So if you're not sure that you would get it, maybe it's just easier to keep Theresa May in place for now. So I would expect her to survive for now in the short term the next few days if her deal is challenged in parliament and voted down which we'll come on to which i think is quite likely then she'll be in a weaker position and then she may be challenged then if she's not challenged in the next few days then she'd be more likely to lose but even if she does lose i don't think it would change the outcome of brexit very much because the parliamentary arithmetic is the parliamentary arithmetic and having a new tory leader who'll probably be somebody who's a sort of acceptable to both leave and remain a camps i would say like uh, sajid Javid, for example, or possibly Jeremy Hunt, could could be Dominic Raab, who's a more of a definite lever. But if whoever the new uh, Prime Minister is, he or she will have to get that withdrawal agreement through Parliament, if possible, because as, as, as John has just said, the EU's not going to reopen the text of the withdrawal agreement, possibly the political declaration, but not the withdrawal agreement. And so um, the only alternative really is that withdrawal agreement or a no-deal exit. And even if a very right-wing Eurosceptic took control of the Tory party and became Prime Minister and said, OK, we're going to go for a no-deal exit, he or she would be voted down and would lose his, his or her parliamentary majority very quickly, in my view, because there's no majority in parliament for a no-deal Brexit at all. So I think the new PM, if there is one, faces the same dilemmas as Mrs May has faced and the same difficulties getting the deal through parliament. OK, so May's likely to stay in post. And what about the fate of her withdrawal agreement? Do you think it's heading for defeat in parliament? Well, of course, we can't be sure, but I would predict it'll be defeated in Parliament, assuming that it's signed off uh, at the summit between the UK and the EU on the 25th of November, and then it'll come to Parliament probably in uh, roughly 10 days into December. I don't see how she assembles a majority for that deal. 
At the moment, she has a majority of 13, including 10 supporters from the Democratic Unionist Party, the hardline Ulsterman. They will probably vote against the deal. I would expect all the opposition parties to vote against the deal, except for a small group of Labour uh, Eurosceptic MPs who will probably support the Prime Minister, and a very small group of Labour MPs who are rather worried about their own constituents uh, who don't like immigration, don't like the EU, and they don't want to be seen to be betraying the result of the referendum. But I would expect total Labour votes uh, for the deal to help Mrs May to be no more than 10, possibly 15. And then uh, within the Tory party, there will be at least, say, roughly 10 pro-EU rebels following the leader Dominic Grieve and Joe Johnson, who will vote down the deal to provoke a kind of crisis situation, which could, they hope, lead to a second referendum. We'll come on to that. There'll be a greater number of Tory MPs, we just don't know, but I'd say 20 or 30 from the ERG, the right-wing side of the Tory party, who will vote down the deal because they don't like it for the reasons John has outlined. You know, we, staying in a customs union indefinitely, perhaps, being a rule-taker from Brussels in many areas, that's unacceptable to them. They'd rather have no deal than that uh, vassalage status, as they call it. So if you add, add together all those various parliamentary uh, votes, I would say she looks quite likely to be defeated on the deal. Not certain, but quite likely. Okay, so let's play through the possible scenarios then. Let's say the deal does get defeated. Can you run us through the five scenarios that you talk about in your piece? Well, I think there are only five possible outcomes if the withdrawal agreement is voted down in the meaningful vote in the British Parliament. One option certainly is we leave without a deal. That is the default option. If nothing else happens before March the 29th, and if the withdrawal agreement is not passed, we will leave without a deal. But there are certainly, in my view, two very different varieties of no deal, some of which are much more, one of which is much more damaging than the other. The most damaging option would be a complete no deal, no deal. Uh, we leave amidst acrimony, we, we withhold all the money the EU thinks we owe the EU. There are no mitigating deals in specific areas to reduce the damage to citizens and businesses. Financial markets react very badly. That would be the chaotic no deal, which I guess is not particularly likely because it would be so much against the interests of both parties. But one could imagine if the, if the British government was a very right-wing Eurosceptic government led by somebody like Boris Johnson, they might provoke uh, that kind of acrimonious no deal scenario. More likely is there'd be a, a no deal scenario whereby the two sides recognise that the UK can't just simply can't ratify the withdrawal agreement, but they're very worried about the impact on citizens and businesses. So there is a mini deal on aviation, so the planes can keep flying, mini deal on medicine re recognition, a mini deal on insurance contracts, something on derivative contracts, something on customs pr procedures to just mean that there will be a lot of chaos and confusion but to eliminate the worst sorts of chaos and confusion I think that is that is a much more likely form of no deal overall I still think no deal is not particularly likely because the British Parliament doesn't want one the trouble is that in order to prevent one the British Parliament assuming it can't pass the withdrawal agreement has to persuade whoever the government is at that time to take other steps to to prevent no deal which leads on to my second third and fourth scenarios the second scenario is a different deal. This is what the Labour Party is talking about. The Labour Party says if Parliament votes down the withdrawal agreement, we should send the government back to Brussels with a mandate from Parliament to get a softer Brexit, properly in a customs union, for example. Some would say more Norway-ish in its uh, characteristics. And I do think that if uh, Parliament acted in such a way and if the government agreed, the EU would probably reopen the political declaration, which is not legally binding and is pretty vague and waffly anyway, as John has said. And I think they might change the tone of it to make it more softish in, it, in, its, in its tone, envisaging a closer future economic partnership, especially if Britain was going to shift its red lines. 
they would indulge the British on that, and then the deal would come back to Westminster, and perhaps if it does represent Labour Party wishes, Labour would find it quite hard to vote against it then in a revised form. So that's a certainly a possibility, which I think the EU might agree to. Um, the next possibility, the third option, is a general election. I don't think this is very likely, because the Tory party wants to avoid an election, because some MPs fear losing their seats, and many of them believe rightly or wrongly, that Jeremy Corbyn might become Prime Minister in an election. They believe that would be a, a very awful thing to happen to the UK. So they'll try and avoid an election if they can. And certainly there's no reason why, if the government is defeated on the withdrawal agreement, it has to resign and call an election, because the Fixed Terms Parliament Act makes it quite hard to get, call an election midterm anyway. They're not impossible. So I think probably there wouldn't be an election. But if there's not an election, and if the renegotiation either doesn't work or doesn't achieve anything doesn't happen, then the, the remaining serious option is, is, a, is a second referendum. And as we've said in the past at the CR, this isn't very likely, and it was, I think, very unlikely. It's becoming more likely than it was as a way of unblocking the blockage in Parliament if Parliament can't pass the withdrawal agreement, mainly because the Labour Party is becoming more sympathetic to the idea. Uh, the Labour Party's current policy is uh, we want a general election if the withdrawal agreement is defeated, but if we can't get an election, we'll favour a referendum. And if a referendum happens, uh, Remain should be one of the options. So Labour is, is on a journey towards a more pro-second referendum position. Some trade unions have moved in this direction. Quite a lot of backbenchers have. A lot of party members have. And I don't think we can rule out that option. So I think the most obvious way to a second referendum is Labour wins an election and then with a policy of holding a referendum. As we've said, an election isn't particularly likely in the short term, but there's another way to a referendum, which is if there's a blockage in Parliament, withdrawal agreement is not passed, then Parliament itself would ask the government, through passing a motion, to organise a referendum. At the moment, Mrs May would certainly say she'd never do that, but I wondered if the alternative seems to be the looming cliff edge of a no-deal Brexit. It might not become a more attractive option to quite a few Tory MPs as well as Labour MPs, and the government might consider it. Now, just before I get on to the final option, the options two, three, and four, renegotiation, election, or withdrawal agreement, all require Article 50 to be extended by the EU. And uh, I think the EU would agree to extend Article 50 if there's a good reason, namely a possibility of stopping Brexit or a serious renegotiation. It wouldn't agree so if the request is a frivolous request because there's a need for the Tory party to work out what it wants on the EU. The, f the final option, if Parliament votes down the withdrawal agreement, is that it actually doesn't vote down the withdrawal agreement. It may vote down the withdrawal agreement and then come mid-March if... There's been, been no election, there's no movement to a second referendum, a renegotiation hasn't happened, and MPs who did vote down the Brexit deal in December think, my God, the cliff edge is coming, we're going to leave without a deal at all. That would be catastrophic. In the national interest, we really need to do something, and however horrible this awful deal is, it's better than no deal, so let's hold our noses and vote for it. That, I think, is quite a plausible scenario. I think the issue of the people's vote, I think you're right, it might actually give a, a ladder for May and other Tories to climb down if there's no other option to throw it back to the people. So thank you both for talking us through this turmoil. The scene's been involuntarily set by the Stop Brexit protests outside that we can hear coming through the windows. And you can find Charles and John's pieces on the CER website. So thanks both. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.